Today we are going to be talking about part two of our final topic that we began last week, and that is, of course, the work of Christ, the work of Christ, okay? So we will begin, as we begin each week, with a book giveaway, and so um, we've kind of had a mix, hopefully it's been a good mix, of more kind of technical resources and then some devotional resources, we've had some uh, resources that were specific to the topic we were covering that week, and then other resources that are more broadly uh, covering systematic theology. So this one, our final book, is uh, a devotional book by John Piper, and it is called Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ. So Frank has read this book. I actually have not read this book. This was Cliff picked this book out, and he's not here to recommend it. So tell us a little bit about it, Frank. Awesome. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and you and you see it in fresh ways each time. Excellent. Well, that's a strong recommendation from Frank. Who would like a copy of Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ? Yes. Okay. Well, let me open us in prayer, and we will get started. Uh, Lord, we come to you this morning uh, fearfully, humbly, uh, trembling before your word, and uh, just eager to hear what you have to say to us this morning uh, about the work of your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we are uh, in awe, we are enamored with uh, just your plan of redemption, and that you sent Jesus Christ into the world to save sinners, and uh, as we consider his, uh, the work of the exalted Christ, I pray that you would just uh, open up our hearts to, to hear and understand uh, and to worship uh, this morning, and so it's in the name of our exalted Savior, Jesus Christ, that we lift all these things up to you, amen. Okay, so... As I said, we're continuing our discussion on the work of Christ today, and you remember that we talked about the fact that in Scripture we see that the death of Christ and all of his redemptive work is the most significant, valuable, and profound event in human history, right? I think we would all agree with that, such that this is not just the pinnacle of this course, but it's the pinnacle of all of Christian theology. So in looking at the work of Christ, we're answering the question, what did he come to do? What did Jesus come to do? And so we saw from 1 Timothy 1.15, he came into the world to save sinners. And he did this first in his state of humiliation, his state of humiliation, and that's what we looked at last week. And his humiliation includes his incarnation, his sinless life, and his sacrificial death. And we saw that most fundamentally, his sacrificial death provided penal substitutionary atonement. And we talked all about what that means last week. And then the result of this atonement to us is 
propitiation, expiation, purification for us, as well as justification, redemption, reconciliation, and redemption. And in all of those, of course, the ultimate result was God's glory. God was glorified in this work. But as glorious as the sacrificial death of Christ was, praise God, that wasn't the end of the story, right? His death was not the end of the story. And at the top of your handout, you'll see Romans 8.34. that says, Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but more than that, who was raised, and who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So here, Paul is describing Christ's exaltation, his exaltation, and that's what we're going to be looking at today. So we'll start with a question. What is the basis of our faith in Jesus? What's the basis of our faith in Jesus? Another way to say this is, what's the, what, what one thing primarily is our faith grounded on? What do you think? Resurrection. Yes, why? Right. Everything we talked about last week, meaningless, if there's no resurrection. Right, And you remember, at the beginning of this class, we talked about the Word of God. We started with the Word of God and how that is our authority for everything that we know to be true about all the rest of the things that we tr- study in systematic theology. Well, in that, we gave away this book got, by Greg Gilbert called Why Trust the Bible. And in that book, he makes the argument that... Um, our trust in the word of God even comes back to the resurrection, the historical reliability of that event, right? Because in order to be the word of God, the Bible, he says, would at bare minimum need to be, a his, be historically accurate and reliable. So because more than any other religion, Christianity presents itself as history, So it's not primarily just a list of ethical teachings, um, but at its very heart, it's a claim that something extraordinary, something concrete and real has happened in history, namely the resurrection of Jesus. Okay, so his logic goes like this, and I think this is sound. That if the Bible, specifically the New Testament, is historically accurate, then the resurrection must have actually happened, okay? And if Jesus actually rose from the dead on the third day, then he must really be the Son of God. And if Jesus is the Son of God, then everything he said is true, including that the Bible, both the Old and New Testament, is the Word of God. So even our trust in the Word of God, in many ways, comes back to the reliability of the resurrection. It's all tied to the resurrection. Our faith rises and falls based on, did Jesus rise from the dead? And Paul makes that argument in 1 Corinthians 15. 
which I wanted to begin by reading a large section of, but I just I don't think we're going to have the time. But I would encourage you to read 1 Corinthians 15 in its entirety, where, where Paul makes it clear, like, if Jesus hasn't been raised from the dead, you're still in your sins. Your faith is worthless. <clears throat> so, and it's... And it's, you know, as, as we said, everything that we talked about last week would be meaningless if it weren't for the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. The resurrection is why the atonement, justification, redemption, reconciliation, and victory that he provides are rock solid and guaranteed because he conquered death and rose so that all who are united to him by faith can share in his new life. So the resurrection is where we will begin in talking about Christ's state of exaltation. Because the work of the exalted Christ begins here. And it is the ground of our faith and hope. And it's central to everything in the New Testament. So the Gospels, of course, testify to the resurrection of Christ. The book of Acts is the story of how the apostles' proclamation of the resurrected Christ, uh, and then they continued in prayer to Christ, who was the one who is living and reigning in heaven. The resurrection is the thing that set them on fire, right? To go out and take the gospel to the ends of the earth. That was what took them from, I mean, along with the filling of the Spirit, it's what took them from the weak, timid, cowards that you saw when Jesus was arrested to these bold men who were going and proclaiming in the face of persecution and and you know arrests and martyrdom the the bold they were emboldened by the fact that they knew he had risen from the dead so that that solidified to them that everything he had said was true and that this was a message that was worth dying for So the epistles, then, that they wrote depend entirely upon the assumption that Jesus has risen from the grave. And then, of course, in Revelation, we see the risen Christ reigning in heaven in preparation for his return to conquer his enemies and reign in glory. So, so what, does, what does the resurrection mean for us? What does it mean for us? So first, we see that Christ's resurrection ensures our regeneration. His resurrection ensures our regeneration. So 1 Peter 1.3. Peter says, We have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So here Peter's connecting Jesus' resurrection with our new birth. And when Jesus rose from the dead, he had a new quality of life, a resurrection life in a human body and a human spirit that were perfectly suited for fellowship and obedience to God forever. And then he earned a new life for us, just like his, in his resurrection. 
even though we don't receive all of that new resurrection life when we become Christians, because our bodies are still as they are. Our bodies don't change immediately. They're still subject to weakness, aging, and death. But in our spirits, we've been made alive with new resurrection power. And it's through his resurrection that Christ earned for us the new kind of life that we receive when we're born again. Okay, number two. The resurrection ensures our justification. Our justification. Romans 4.25. Paul says that Jesus was put to death for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So when he was raised from the dead, it was God's declaration that he had accepted Christ's work of redemption. So by raising Jesus from the dead, God the Father was essentially saying that he approved of Christ's work in suffering and dying for our sins and that his work was completed and that he no longer had any need to remain dead. So there's no penalty left to pay for sin, no more wrath of God to bear, no more guilt or liability to punishment. All of it completely paid for and no more guilt remaining. So in the resurrection, God was essentially saying to Jesus Christ, I approve of what you've done, and this sacrifice is acceptable to me. And for those who have believed in Christ, since he was raised for our justification, and since we have been raised with him, Ephesians 2.6, then by virtue of our union with him, God's approval of Jesus is actually his approval of us as well. So when the Father, in essence, says to Christ, all the penalty for sins has been paid, and I find you not guilty but righteous in my sight, he was at the same time making that declaration to all of us who have trusted in Christ. So this, this is the way that his resurrection gives final proof that he earned our justification. And then lastly, the resurrection ensures that we will receive perfect resurrection bodies. Now I'm looking forward to that. I don't know about you. But the older I get the more I realize it makes me long for heaven because I realize that these bodies are, they're, they're falling apart. They're breaking down. So, yeah, the New Testament, on several different occasions, it connects Jesus' resurrection with our final bodily resurrection. 1 Corinthians 6, 14, Paul says, And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Similarly, 2 Corinthians 4, 14, He who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. And then, of course, 1 Corinthians 15, which we mentioned, um, 
Paul says that Christ is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. First fruits. So this is like an agricultural metaphor that essentially means that we are going to be like Christ. Just as, just as Christ, who is the first fruits, would be raised, so too we will be raised. And his resurrection body actually shows what ours will be like when we are raised. We'll be healed, glorified, whole, uncorrupted, not susceptible to corruption. Any questions or thoughts on resurrection? Yeah. Yeah, that's a great point. So Sam is noting how most of us, this, this point of us having resurrected bodies um, when we're raised with Christ versus how that is kind of lost on most Christians and how many times our, our ideas of what our you know, eternal state is going to be like comes more from Greek mythology than it does from the Bible. There's this, there's this idea of, um, so Randy Alcorn has a book on heaven. It's like this you know, very thick treatment on heaven, which is very good. And he deals with this and he talks about the fact that, yeah, it's like it comes from Plato, like this platonic dualism that these ideas come from versus actually thinking about the Bible of like, no, uh, we are not going to be disembodied spirits, like floating around on clouds, playing harps. Like having a body is part of us being created in God's image. It's part of who the resurrected Christ is. Like Christ has a body right now. He's seated at the right hand of the Father with a human body, with holes in his hands. Um, and so just understanding the importance of our bodies are an important part of who we are. That's how God intended us to be, not disembodied spirits. So I think it should give us a lot more encouragement, a lot more excitement uh, of longing for and looking forward to heaven in knowing like, hey, there's going to be physical things like parts of what we enjoy here on earth we're going to experience in heaven. And part of that is going to be, you know, having bodies and eating food and those kinds of things versus just, I mean, it's hard to, honestly, it's hard to get excited about the more ethereal type of existence. In fact, Alcorn's quote in that book is, it's like eating gravel and trying to convince yourself that you like it. You know what I mean? It's just not, it's just not the same. To think about, heaven the way the bible presents it with bodies like christ has to me is just a whole different it's way more encouraging way more uh something i anticipate versus just this you know spiritual existence frank you had something to add yeah, 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, you try to psych yourself up and think, okay, well, God's going to be there, and I'm going to be in his presence and worshiping him forever. But it's still just like what we know about what brings us joy involves physical things. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Right. The child's going to play near the serpent's, the adder's hole. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm, yeah. Yeah. And that she's got a new body now. Yeah. Or, yeah. 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 Yeah, agreed. Um, okay, let's move to the second uh, work of the exalted Christ, and that's the ascension. The ascension. So after Jesus' resurrection, he was on earth for 40 days, according to Acts 1. And then he led the disciples out to Bethany, just outside Jerusalem, actually to the Mount of Olives, which, interestingly, is where he will return as well, according to Zechariah 14.4. And lifting up his hands, Luke 24.50 and 51 says, And lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. So the question then is, why is the ascension so significant? Because a lot of times I think we don't even we don't even talk about the ascension when we're talking when we're sharing the gospel with people. I mean, sometimes we may even stop at the crucifixion without even getting to the resurrection, and then if we get to the resurrection, we may not get to the ascension. Nick. Mm-hmm. Kind of in my head, it's like I'm thinking uh, like the, the ascension implies victory, so I'm trying to think of like that distinction of victory, how it's distinct of that, but also the, the distinction of being resurrected. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah so, okay, yeah. Well, let's let's get some other thoughts. Ryan. Sorry, Frank. R- let me get Ryan's thoughts, and then I'll get you. Mm-hmm. 
Yep. Mm-hmm. Yes. Good. Frank. I do not. Does anyone know that Jeremy Muller? Oh. It's a creative title. The Ascension of Christ, Patrick Schreiner. Yeah. Have you read the book, Jeremy? Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm sure that's a, I, I, I don't know if that's a book we would necessarily recommend but it sounds like probably but yeah it's a yeah it's a, it's a, it the point is though it's a it is a neglected doctrine i mean it's it's one that's not talked about or given the kind of emphasis that it should have um <clears throat> well one reason is like he he had to ascend he had to go away before he could come again right i i just had an interesting conversation with my kids over the weekend about advent they got Advent calendars, and so we're talking about what does Advent mean. Um, and yeah, just explaining of how, like, yeah, in his, he came, then he went away, and now he's coming again. And so that that he going away is is the ascension. Um, but also, interestingly, the ascension is actually the prerequisite for all the other saving works of Christ that will follow, of the, of the exalted Christ. His session, pouring out the Spirit at Pentecost, his intercession, and his second coming, all are contingent upon him ascending to heaven. Right? So it's clear from Psalm 110... And also Acts chapter 2, verses 33 through 36, that Christ had to ascend in order to sit down at the right hand of the Father, thereby beginning his heavenly session. And we'll, we'll talk more about session uh, in our next point. Psalm 110, verse 1, but really the whole psalm is about. Um, okay, so... So by his ascension, Christ was able to take his place as the king over all creation until the time when all things would be wholly subjected to him. Okay? It's also necessary, <clears throat> the ascension was necessary for Christ to send the Spirit at Pentecost. So he says in John 16, <clears throat> verse 7, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. <clears throat> it would have been hard for them to get their minds around the fact that they were better off for Jesus to leave them, right, in that moment. <clears throat> and yet, he makes that claim because he knew he was going to pour out the Spirit and that was going to empower their ministry to go and do what he had commissioned them to do. 
So his, um, his ascension is also required in order for him to perform his intercession. His intercession, which we will also talk more about. So, but in Hebrews 8, Christ's intercession is his current priestly ministry for his people. And it's possible only if he takes his position as a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Okay? And that position is not on earth but in heaven. And it's achieved only by his ascension. And then finally, it's also clear that he can't come again until he has gone away in the first place, right? So his second coming, his return, is dependent upon the ascension. And so his ascension saves in that every benefit that we receive from Jesus in heaven would be impossible unless he first ascended to take his position there. So ascension, crucially important to the work of the exalted Christ. Everything he is doing in heaven and will do when he returns to earth required that he ascend. Okay, next aspect of Christ's exaltation is session. Session, what does session mean? Okay, yeah, Presbyterian elders, that's good. <clears throat> what does it mean when we talk about the exalted Christ? I learned this trick from Jeremy Muller, actually, when he taught the evangelism class over the summer. He would ask a question, and no one would answer, and he would just keep staring at him <laughs> until somebody answered, which is good. Session. Well, session is an old word. I didn't have the guts to just stick with it. I'm just gonna <laughs> I'm just gonna move past it, Jeremy. It's an old word meaning the act of sitting down. The act of sitting down. It's just, it's an old King James word. Yeah. So and his session actually sig- signified a couple of different things. Okay. It signified the completion of his redemptive work. Very important. Hebrews chapter 1. So one specific aspect of his ascension into heaven and receiving honor was the fact that he sat down at the right hand of God. Which is which theologians refer to this as his session at God's right hand. So we referenced Psalm 110 a minute ago, where uh, the psalmist predicted that the Messiah would sit at God's right hand. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And so when Christ ascended back into heaven, he received the fulfillment of that promise. And that's what Hebrews 1 refers to when it says, 
when he had made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So, and, and, and yeah, the, the, fact that, the fact that he sat down was just as significant as where he sat down, right? Because it signified that his work was complete. And it's well known that there, was, there were no seats in the temple or the tabernacle in the Old Testament, right? Because the priests, and specifically the high priest, his work was never done. It was never finished. They always had to be making sacrifices day after day, year after year on the Day of Atonement. Their work was never complete. But Christ, after he had made purification for sins, he sat down because his sacrifice was sufficient for all time. That once and for all, never again had to be repeated. And so he sat down. And just like we sit down at the end of a hard day's work, satisfied with what we've done, so Christ also sat down, demonstrating that his work of redemption is complete. Okay, and also, his sitting down at God's right hand is an indication of, of the authority he received over the entire universe. Okay? An indication of his authority. This is what Paul refers to in Ephesians 1, verses 20 and 21, when he says that God raised him from the dead and seated at his right hand far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named. Okay, and it's, he's, he's there now. He's at the right hand of God um, now, interceding for his people. That's what he's doing. And that leads us to our next work of his exaltation, and that is intercession. Intercession. So what is Intercession. Yes, yeah, going into the presence of God on behalf of the people, yes. Yeah, so this is a priestly work. You know, we talked about his offices of prophet, priest, and king. And the, the priests under the old covenant would do two primary things. They would make sacrifices, they would offer sacrifices on behalf of the people, and they would pray to God on behalf of the people. They would intercede on behalf of the people. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. He's pure. No one else can make this intercession on our behalf besides him. And in fact, I've got a quote here from Grudem that, that says what you just said. He said, He must be the one who in his divine nature can both know all things and bring them into the presence of the Father. Yet because he became and continues to be a man, he has the right to represent us before God, and he can express his petitions from the viewpoint of a sympathetic high priest, one who understands by experience what we go through. 
Therefore, Jesus is the only person in the whole universe for all eternity who can be such a heavenly high priest, who is truly God and truly man, exalted forever above the heavens. So yeah, he had to be fully God and fully man to, to even be able to intercede for us in this way. So, his intercession saves. The Bible teaches us that his intercession saves, and it saves in a few different ways. Um, first, it saves us because it is the completion of Christ's priestly work, as you said. It's not the completion of his sacrificial work. His sacrificial work was finished forever on the cross. But his sacrificial work was not the end of his priestly work. After making the final sacrifice for sins, he rose again, ascended into heaven, sat down at God's right hand, and poured out the Holy Spirit on the church. And so as a result of these saving events, he now makes intercession for the sinners he came to save. So if he hadn't risen from the dead, he wouldn't be able to uh, appear in the presence of God on our behalf as intercessor. And if he hadn't appeared in the presence of God on our behalf, his priestly work would be incomplete. But right now, the exalted Christ is in heaven making continual and effective intercession for us, guaranteeing our salvation. And that leads us to the second way that intercession saves. And it saves because it is one means by which God enables his people to continue in faith and obedience. So it's God's plan that his elect persevere in faith and obedience. And one means by which he accomplishes that plan is the continual intercession of Christ on our behalf. Luke 22, we see that Jesus prayed for Simon. He says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. So it's a way of strengthening us. And it's also effective. It's not only continual, but it's also effective. So God hears, God the Father hears the Son when he prays. Okay? And he always answers his requests. We see that in John 11, verse 42. So that means that his intercessory prayers are always successful. They never fail. So just like Jesus prayed for Peter, he's also praying for all of us. He prays that we'll continue in the faith and persevere until our final salvation. And God always answers that prayer. Hebrews 7.25 says he always lives to make intercession for us. So he's able to save us to the uttermost. He's a perfect 
Savior for us. Robert Murray McShane says, If I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. But he said, yet the distance makes no difference. He's praying for me just the same. And here's another kind of lengthy quote, but I think it's worth it, from Burkhoff, Louis Burkhoff, theologian. It says, it is a consoling thought that Christ is praying for us even when we are negligent in our prayer life. That he's presenting to the Father those spiritual needs which were not present to our minds and which we often neglect to include in our own prayers. And that he prays for our protection against the dangers which we're not even conscious of and against the enemies which threaten us, though we don't even notice them. He is praying that our faith may not cease and that we may come out victoriously in the end. Man, what could give you more confidence than that? Knowing that Christ is at the right hand of the Father praying for us in ways that we don't even know to pray for ourselves. And his prayers never fail. God always hears his prayers. Okay? So that brings us then, are any questions or thoughts on any of that before we move to the second coming? On intercession? Okay. So the final work of the exalted Christ is his return. It's his return. Call this the second coming, second advent. Um, so the Bible teaches that there will be a sudden, personal, visible, bodily return of Jesus Christ at a time in the future. So Jesus talked about his return a lot, actually. He said in Matthew twenty four forty four, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. He said in John 14, 3, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And then Paul said to the Thessalonians, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the archangel's call, with the sound of the trumpet of God. So he's coming back suddenly, personally, visibly, bodily, in glory. But what does his return mean for us? What does it mean for us? Well, for one, it means that we're going to be with him and the Father. We will be in his presence. He says in John 14, 2 and 3, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. So he's likening heaven here to a house with many rooms. He's, refer, he's returned to the Father to prepare this place for each believer. 
And the point is, is that we're going to be right at home in his heavenly presence. We're not going to be out of place. We're going to, we're going to belong there. And then Paul teaches the same thing um, in talking to the Thessalonians when he's, he's trying to clear up the confusion that they had about Jesus' return. Because some of the believers there had been led to believe that they might miss it. They might miss his return and that other believers that they knew who had died would miss out on it. Um, but Paul said they weren't to grieve as the unsaved do when their loved ones die because they're not going to miss out on the final salvation, but that Jesus will raise them from the dead. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. So it's going to mean salvation, final salvation for living and dead believers And it's, his, our salvation here is expressed as being with him forever. Being with him forever. And that's triggered by the second coming, at which time all the saints will go to be with the Lord. So it also means glorification for us. His return means glorification. It brings glory for Christians. Because although we live here on earth, our citizenship is in heaven, right? We await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Philippians 3. So His... The second coming will mean glory for all the redeemed. I'm looking at the time. Probably need to move a little bit quicker, but. Um, so we spiritually died with Christ. We were raised with him and we're presently seated in the heavenly places with him. And so we are so united to him that two different times scripture teaches that his second coming will mean a second coming for us, so to speak. So Paul says in Colossians 3, when Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So our true identity is only partially revealed now because it's obscured by sin. But we are so joined to Christ spiritually that our full identity will be revealed when he returns. So Jesus' return also brings eternal life. You remember Jesus talking about the sheep and the goats in Matthew 25. Probably the most famous passage on the destinies, the different destinies of people. And he teaches that the sheep will be blessed with a rich inheritance in the final kingdom of God, but the goats will be cursed forever in the fire prepared for Satan and his angels. 
So, Matthew 25, 46. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So this is glorious news. It's also sobering news. As we think about the destiny of our ultimate destiny by God's grace, but also knowing the destiny of those who have rejected him. So this should give us encouragement, but I think it should also spur us on to want to share Christ with those around us. And then you see at the end of the Bible, in Revelation 22, it says, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay everyone for what he has done. This is the risen Christ talking, who's going to come again and reward his people, punish the wicked. And then John says in 22.14, Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life. So we're blessed. We should be filled with joy at the end because... We've been cleansed by the blood of the Lamb and as a result have a right to the tree of life. And at the end, all sin will be removed from all God's people and they will have free access to the tree which symbolizes abundant life. And that leads us to our next point. What does the second coming mean to us? Well, it should mean joy, great joy. Matchless joy. In John, after he talked about Jesus' promise to return, or in Revelation, when John was talking about his, his promise to return, he talks about the bliss awaiting the saints. He says, blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life. And Paul's got a similar message in Titus 2. He says, the the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us. And how does he describe Christ's appearing? As our blessed hope, our blessed hope. The hope of the Lord and Savior's coming again should fill us with joy as we anticipate being with him forever. Another benefit of his return is deliverance. So, and this deliverance kind of takes two different forms. First, he's going to deliver his people from any persecution they're enduring. So, Paul makes this plain in 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 6 through 8. God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. So on that day, he's going to come to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at by all true believers. And the other deliverance that he brings in his second coming is, of course, deliverance from eternal punishment. 
So I'm going to move on a little bit quicker just to finish this up. Lastly, his second coming brings cosmic restoration. Cosmic restoration. Okay? So Peter speaks of Jesus' sufferings to his hearers in Jerusalem and then invites them to repent. And then what will be the result in Acts 3? That those hearers would know the forgiveness of sins and that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things. Restoring all things. So his return is going to bring many blessings for his people. But it's also going to result in restoring all things according to the Old Testament prophets. So here again, we see the second coming is going to bring in the new heavens and the new earth that Isaiah talks about. And then in all of this, in all of this, how should we respond as we're as we're thinking about all of these things related to the risen Christ, to the exalted Christ, and specifically in his second coming. How should we respond to that? I'm going to do the Muller, Jeremy Muller trick. Great hope, for sure. Amen. Yeah, what could give us greater hope? That's right. Yeah. Right. Our faith will be sight. Yeah. Yeah. And how about just worship? Worshiping Christ. As we, I mean, this is four weeks now. We spent two weeks looking at the person of Christ. And we spent two weeks talking about the work of Christ. And so, yeah, I think just stopping and worshiping this risen, ascended, reigning, returning Lord and Savior that we have. We'll close with, yes. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Mm. 
Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. No, those are great. Those are great thoughts. And yeah, I think just even even in the world that we're living in right now, especially over the last couple of years, like people are looking around thinking like what is going on, you know? Seems like the world has lost its mind. And and we just think like uh we're we're thinking about the future of like, oh, what's it going to be like to raise kids in this world and all that kind of stuff. But when you get into this and you think about who Christ is, what he's done for us, how our future is secure in him, I mean, it just makes all of that stuff just not important at all. And it allows you to just think, okay, this is what matters. Like the, the fact that I have been saved by this Savior and that he's coming again, and that I'm going to be with him for all of eternity, like, who cares about, you know, what's going on in society? Because it's just, you know, we live in a fallen world, and the Bible teaches us that it's not getting better. So just knowing, we can't put our hope in any of those things. We can't put our hope in a prosperous nation, or freedoms, or elected officials, or whatever it might be. We can't put our hope in any of those things, but we can have ultimate hope in this savior yeah so revelation twenty two twenty. he who testifies to these things says surely i am coming soon amen come lord jesus so let let that be our prayer today so just just before we close um this is this is our last class i want to of course thank you all for being here on behalf of Cliff and Sam and myself. We've just, we've really enjoyed thinking through these things with you guys. We've appreciated your attention and your participation. Um, And for those of you wanting to stay on the theology track in this equipping curriculum, we're going to be offering Systematic Theology 2 in the spring, okay? So between now and then, we're going to have some seven-week equipping classes during December and January, Uh, and those are going to be Unity and Diversity, How to Study the Bible, and Conversion. So those will be happening in December, January. Ryan, I think you might be involved in one of those, right? Which one are you doing? Conversion, okay. So look for those over December and January, Uh, and there's going to be more information coming on those. But then Systematic Theology 2 is going to begin on February 6th. And in that course, we're going to be looking at pneumatology, which is the study of the Holy Spirit. We're going to be looking at soteriology, which is the study of salvation. We're going to be looking at ecclesiology, which is the study of the church. And we're going to be looking at eschatology, which is the study of the end times. Okay, So we hope to see you all there for that. So let me close this in prayer, and we will be done. Oh, Lord, we, um, we do stand in awe uh, as we consider the work of Christ on our behalf. His work of, uh, first of all, his sacrificial death that paid the penalty for our sins and 
earned our righteousness before you, uh, and even seeing him uh, resurrected and ascended and seated at your right hand, interceding on our behalf, and with the hope of knowing that he's coming, coming again, Lord. It just it fills us with joy. It fills us with confidence. Um, it fills us with uh, boldness, hopefully, to go and share this message of reconciliation uh, to the people around us. And we just pray that uh, as we've considered these things, Lord, that we wouldn't uh, just move past them. We pray that we would be impacted, that you would change the way we think and the way we speak and the way we live um, as a result of thinking carefully about what your word tells us about the work that you've done through Christ on our behalf. Uh, Lord, we pray for our uh, corporate gathering as we go into the main service. We just pray that you would... um, Just open our hearts and our ears uh, to hear all that you have to say to us in that. And we just pray that you would be glorified in our corporate worship. And it's in Jesus' name we lift all this up to you. Amen.